Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good evening, everyone. It is Wednesday, December the 15th, 2021. It is currently 6.26 p.m. Central Time. You know the rest. I'm coming to you live from the empty sanctuary of Victory Baptist Church, Ovalo, Texas. I've been here for a couple of hours. We've talked about a lot of interesting things today in our live broadcast. Hopefully those past broadcasts were very beneficial, very helpful, looking at what's going on in culture, look at what was going, what's going on within the church. But we always have to balance that out by once again turning to a Bible study exercise. And this week, our Bible study exercise is all about Isaiah chapter nine. And that's what we're going to be turning to again. I, I hope that this approach this evening will be beneficial once again. I know some of you may be tired of it. I definitely understand that. But there, each time I turn on the microphone for a Bible study exercise in Isaiah seven, Isaiah eight, or Isaiah nine, I believe it is important to, again, at least walk through some of the basic elements so that we are seeing the larger picture. The reason, one of the re- well, one of the reasons we're looking at Isaiah 7, 8, 9 is because obviously the Bible study curriculum that you have access to if you want to participate in the Bible study exercises, you can email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com, say, I want, I want the Bible study curriculum. I'll send you the link. You sign up. It's absolutely free. We are very grateful for those listeners who have offered financial support to help pay for the Bible study curriculum so that nobody has to be charged for it, that everyone has access to it, that it's free. We want it to be available to as many people as we can make it available to so that they have a Bible study curriculum that really supplements what we are doing here. We Sometimes we look to it very closely. Sometimes I deviate, but it's always there for you to dig into, for you to read, and for you to, uh, to, to, to really, you know, get, hopefully get something out of. And of course, you can always ask any questions about it. And I got no problem turning on the microphone and doing a special episode just to whatever issue you discover or question you may have and we can always add to that. Um, so thank you for those who have financially supported to, to make that available. And most importantly, thanks to those who actually participate in the Bible study exercises. I, I, I've stated this so many times. And I, I'll, I mean, let me do a little preaching right here. I think a lot of times there are a lot of people who do a lot of complaining or articulating their discontentment that they believe that the church, you know, they, that we need to do more together and we need this and we need, and they always have all of these things that they think the church needs. But I've said it so many times before you start complaining about what the church needs to do, you need to participate in what the church is doing. It's, it's always the, the church needs to do this, but you have to participate and support what the church is currently doing. And I, and with the Bible study exercises, a lot of the things that people ask for, we're trying to accomplish in the Bible study exercises, right? So we have Bible study where we're trying to bring a, a, a group of people together committed to studying basically a text of scripture 
per week, one week dedicated to one text of scripture. So that means we go in depth. They have the ability to ask questions, to do assignments, to participate, to have a conversation with one another, to discuss. So there's exhortation, there's encouragement, and all of that hopefully is spiritually beneficial. A lot of people want these things that are spiritually beneficial, but they don't really want to participate when it comes to, well, the work. But spiritual benefit, it requires a little bit of work and effort and Bible study exercise, I think, tries to meet a lot of those desires people have, but then you can't get people to to actually participate and then say, well, we need more. Well, we, we're, we're doing what we can to try to accommodate that. And I think a lot of people are just so disconnected, maybe with their church or who knows what's going on, but the Bible study exercise is like, no, here, here, here we are. Here's a group of people. Join us. Dig in. Now, we're going to ask a lot of hard questions, but we're going to work through the text. And I think a lot of people say, I, I, I've heard it so many times, I just want someplace where I can study the Bible and I can really learn and I can ask questions. Well, that's what the Bible study exercise is about if people will participate. See, you can either participate or not. And if not, then then maybe some of the things you're looking for is not because they're not available. It's because you're not participating in what is available. I think uh, that could turn into an entire sermon, but we, I really have this idea that, you know, we talk about in Hebrews 10. Now, I know there's a historical context there that as the day approaching, forsake not the assembly, encourage, exhort one another, right? That, that we have to do that. Well, um, yes, that's a historical context pertaining to 70 AD. I understand that. But we still need that exhortation, that encouragement. We still need to come together to study God's word. We still need to, to do that. And by doing the Bible study exercises, that's what we're trying to accomplish. Here you go. We're doing this together. Participate, join in. You can ask questions. And then I, I do everything in my power that if you ask a question that I turn this microphone on and address it. I really think we're trying to do something very, very, very super important. I don't know if the importance is seen by everyone else, Others may see it's just another podcast. It's no big deal. But I think we're trying to do something far more than a podcast episode. I think we're trying to do, we're trying to really get people involved in serious Bible study wherever they may be. And we're trying to provide them everything they need to dig in. And we're not just saying, hey, sit and listen to me. I'm trying to get you involved as well. So I, I hope I hope you're really understanding what we're trying to do, and hopefully it, it's being very beneficial. But I want to thank thank all the people who do participate. You 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 are doing the work. You're doing the assignments. You're talking about it. You're 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 really that that's that's so critical. Without that, then then all this really becomes is a podcast episode, and then the whole thing falls apart because this has never been designed to be a situation where you just listen to me. It's been designed for me to do some of it, but then I hand it over to you and then you dig in and then you get to participate. And that's where that's where Bible study really, to me, means something is when you're actually doing it, not just listening, but some people aren't willing to put forth the, the, uh, the time or the effort. But for those who are, I'm very, very grateful and, and thankful and hopefully it's, it's benefiting everyone. But with all of that said, 
right? I know I'm getting ready to start preaching. <laughs> There's a lot of, th- I have lots of thoughts about a lot of things when it comes to the church and, and just, uh, there's so many different, uh, different aspects there. But we are in the book of Isaiah. And what I, uh, what I, I was saying when I kind of get onto that subject as well is that obviously whenever I come to Isaiah, I feel that we have to kind of go back and walk through this to give us the bigger picture because so many times this is just ripped out of context, ripped out of context, ripped out of context. And so I don't think I can repeat the context enough because I I think all of us can agree when you get into Isaiah 7, Isaiah 8, Isaiah 9, anywhere in Isaiah, you can, you can just like you can get lost. You can be like, what in the world? I don't get that. What is that? What is that? What about this? What about that? And you can, you can be overwhelmed with thousands of questions of what you do not know. Remember I said in uh, the last episode uh, when we were studying Isaiah 9, you need to make a, a, get a sheet of paper, write down, you know, draw a line right down the middle on, on one side of that column, write down all the things we do know, the things you can be dogmatic about, the things you, there's just no question about. And then you can write down all the things you don't know. And the reason you have to have that list of things you do know is because if you're not careful, you'll get so caught up in all the things you don't know that you'll end up missing the actual point of the chapters, right? You'll just, you'll just, uh, the power, the beauty, the truth, the practical applications will be lost. And you'll just be like, I don't know. I'm somewhere, you know, you're, you're like, you're calling for help. Hey, can someone come get me where I don't know. I'm somewhere in the book of Isaiah. I, I, I went wandering down this path and I haven't been able to find my way out. How long have you been there? I don't know. 27 years. I don't know. My family's probably all dead now. I don't know where anybody is. Can, can you come and get me? I can't find my way out. And I definitely understand that because you can get into Isaiah and you can just, you, you're like, well, I don't know where I am anymore. I, I'm compl- I can't find my way back. I'm completely lost. That's why you need to go, okay, what, what do I know? And then look at what you do know. It's perfectly okay to investigate what we don't know. I encourage that you should, but have those foundational points that you're like, I know, I know this. And hopefully that principle is being beneficial to you. And so I keep trying to go back to some of the basic concepts so that we do not forget them. So let's go, let's go through this class. All right. So I started preaching a little bit about participation and, and what the Bible study exercise is all about. And I hope it can be that for people. Look, a lot of people out there feel like, well, I need this. I need this. I need that. I need this. Okay. Well then participate in this. And maybe, maybe we can provide some of those things. I don't know if we can, but we're, we're trying, we're trying. Okay. But when it comes to Isaiah, I just want you to realize you've got to grab onto what you do know. All right. I hope, I hope all that makes sense. I know I'm, I've got too many thoughts in my brain right now that I want to, to explore all of them. But what we really need to do is explore Isaiah 7, 8, and 9. All right. So just, you can just take whatever I've given you there free of charge. No charge for any of it. You can just, you, you can, you can apply it. You can ignore it. It can be encouraging or maybe it's challenging. You do whatever you want with all of that. But are you ready? Isaiah 7, 8, 9. Let's get, let's just make the story as simple as we can. We have two kings, one from Syria, one from Israel. They've joined forces. They're coming after Ahaz, the king of Judah. They want to remove him. Why? Because they want to form an alliance between Judah, Israel, and Syria so that they can go after 
the Assyrians. They want to, they want to stop the, they see the Assyrians as a threat. They want to stop them. They want to remove them. So they want to form a confederacy to go after them. Ahaz, for numerous reasons, he is like, nope, I don't want to join you, Israel. I don't want you, Assyria. I, I'm, I'm more pro Assyria. I'll rely on the Assyrians. I'll rely on the Assyrians to get rid of you. I'll trust the Assyrians. I don't need you. All right. So let me just make it very clear. This is so important. Ultimately, and I think this is accurate, and I do not think this is wrong in any way, shape, or form to say, the Assyrians, Israel, Assyria, and Judah, none of them are looking to God. None of them are looking to his word. None of them are looking to the, they are playing politics. They're playing, you know, military campaigns. They're looking for power, position. They want conquest. They want to conquer that's what they want. And nobody seems to be in any way, shape, or form even focusing on the things of God. You've got Ahaz obviously is evil. Obviously, Israel is, well, they've got all kinds of problems going on. These people have abandoned God, rejected God. They're not listening to God. The whole thing is an absolute mess. Think of it. They're stumbling around in darkness, okay? They don't know what they're just completely spiritually confused, all right? So God, in his mercy, and based off the promises he has made to Judah, he sends Isaiah to Ahaz to go, look, they're, they're coming for you, but don't be scared. Calm down. Don't do anything foolish. And, uh, you know, this is not going to happen. And he brings along with him his son. We'll talk about that in a minute. You have Isaiah. He himself, his name you, you could, you, you could even include Isaiah here, but he goes there and said, don't worry. It's all going to be okay. It's okay. But Ahaz, he's like, I don't you know, basically what he, he doesn't care about what God is saying through Isaiah. He doesn't care what a, uh, Isaiah is saying. He doesn't care what God is saying. He's already made up his mind. I'm going with the Assyrians, but he covers his refusal, uh, to listen to God because God offers him a sign. He basically, re, he covers his refusal and a robe of self-righteousness by saying, I can't tempt the Lord. But in reality, he's already made up his mind. He wants the Assyrians. He's rejecting God. He wants his way. He wants his will. He wants his word. And he's going for the Assyrians. So God says, okay, you don't want a sign. I'm going to give a sign ultimately to the house of David, to Judah. I'm going to give a sign. And that's going to be a virgin will conceive and bear a son. And his name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. That's the ultimate sign to Judah. All right. It, it, obviously, if that doesn't happen for another 700 years, it has nothing to do with Ahaz at that point, but he rejected a sign. Well, then there's some other things mentioned about a child being born. That when he reaches a certain age, it sounds like the king of Israel and the king of Syria is going to be taken care of. But that doesn't seem to be referring to Emmanuel because Emmanuel is not coming around for another 700 years. So that doesn't seem to make any sense. So we think that that's referring to Isaiah's son, that when Isaiah's son reaches a certain age, hey, I'm going to take care of the problem, Ahaz. I, I said I would, I will, I'm going to protect, I'm going to do what I said, because he's going to protect Judah. Because, well, that's from the, the line from which ultimately Jesus will come. And so he's got a promise, he's got covenant promises there. Then Isaiah co goes back to Ahaz, 
uh, there's a, uh, well, he, he, he has another son and that son serves as, in a sense, another sign because when that son arises, I should say, uh, not necessarily goes back to Ahaz, but Isaiah is going to have another son and this son is going to be a sign as well. And when this son reaches an age, we think that that son and the first son of Isaiah, they'll reach this, these ages basically at the same time. And then all of these problems are going to be taken care of. So, Ahaz refused to sign, and in reality, he got multiple signs. He got multiple signs. Some of those signs are very relevant to the current situation. Some of those signs, or one of those signs was very future and was to the house of David and was going to serve to the future. But Ahaz doesn't listen to any of this. He refuses, the people of Judah refuses to listen to any of this. They don't want God. They want military victory. They want a solution and they've all, in a sense, reject God, reject his salvation. And as a result, well, the, the thing that they're looking to, the Assyrians, are now going to become the very thing that's going to bring punishment, pain, and suffering upon them. Because they reject God's salvation, they get a false salvation, which ultimately is going to just lead to judgment and punishment. It's a, it's a, it's a frustrating sad situation where people are rejecting God and looking for everything else other than God, all right? Now, that's some of the basics there. That's some of the basics. Now, what I'm going to be doing this evening is I have in front of me the Philomet Bible, the Philomet Bible. Now, if you're not familiar with the Philomet Bible, it's a very unique concept. Um, On every page of the Philomet Bible, there's a little symbol at the top of the page. It's a little symbol. And uh, it goes right next, and the little symbol appears right next to the page number. Now, what you do when you buy a filament Bible is you download the filament app. You take your, you take, you open up the app, which opens up your camera. You point your camera at your, in your tablet or your phone. You point at the little symbol, and it opens up all kinds of commentaries and study notes right there on your phone or tablet. So it's like a study Bible. But the study notes are not in the Bible. The study notes show up on the app. All you got to do is take your phone or tablet, point at that little symbol next to the page number, and it opens up the notes that are relevant to that chapter or that page. It's a really cool concept. I, 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 I use the filament Bible sometimes, and then sometimes I forget that I have it. But I was sitting here tonight going, okay, how do we advance our discussion in Isaiah? How do we advance this? So I, I grabbed the filament Bible opened up the camera on my iPad, and boom, I'm looking at the notes. So we're going to go back to Isaiah 8, and we're just going to look at some of the different things the notes have to say, because I think this will bring us down all the way into chapter 9, where we want to go, all right? So let's go back to Isaiah chapter 8, verse 18, all right? Because this is very important, all right? Uh, And I, I tell you that, that I'm using the Filament Bible app, because I, I always like you to know where I'm getting my, if I'm, if, I'm, if I'm going to be making any references to any notes, I want you to know exactly where I got the notes from. All right, I definitely like to do that, okay? I know I can just take the notes, put them in my own language, my own verbiage, my own wording, and then, you know, then I come across super smart, but that's what pastors always do. Why do that? Just let them know, hey, here's what I'm looking at. Here's what I'm basing some of my thoughts on, and then you can look at that, and then, of course, you add your own thoughts to it. So, I think that that's very important because you want the people involved in the study, not just sitting there listening to you. All right, so Isaiah chapter 8, verse 18, very important verse. 
Behold, Isaiah speaking, behold, I and the children whom the Lord hath given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts, which dwelleth in Mount Zion. Now, the first time I've read that, and I've talked about it now a numerous times, that see, Isaiah's sons, they were signs. And I do believe that they were signs, but it's interesting. I, I never thought about it until tonight. Wait a minute. Isaiah 8, 18, not only are the sons a sign, Isaiah himself is a sign. Isaiah and his sons are a sign. And so I was trying to think, what, what, what could that mean? What should I do with that? How much do, how far back do I go and really try to expound on this? But I really want you to think about all three are signs. And what was interesting as I was sitting here trying to process this, look what I found. All right. I'm going to read again from the Filament Bible app. I and the children whom the Lord hath given me. The names of the prophet Isaiah and his children carried significance as signs and wonders. Shirar Jashub, a remnant will return, was a sign of God's faithfulness to Judah. Mehar Shal Hashbaz, swift to plunder and quick to carry away, signified the destruction of Damascus and Samaria and the desolation of faithless Judah, because Judah is going to suffer as well from the Assyrians coming in. So the Assyrians, so everyone's going to suffer. Everyone's going to suffer because they've rejected God. They're all stumbling around in darkness. But this is interesting. The name of Isaiah, Yahweh is salvation, itself signifies that salvation is from the Lord alone. So I didn't even think about this. Even Isaiah's name is a sign, even to Ahaz, to Judah, to everyone. God, God is the source of salvation. They've rejected Isaiah, and by rejecting Isaiah, they're rejecting God's salvation. God gives them a sign. A remnant will return. God is going to be faithful. He's going to be faithful to Judah. He's going to be faithful to his promises. And uh, he also tells them, hey, uh, uh, swift to plunder and quick to carry. Hey, you're going to suffer. You're, hey, Israel, Syria, you're going to suffer. Hey, Judah, you're going to suffer. You're all going to suffer because you've rejected Isaiah. You've rejected God. You've rejected the stream of Shaloah, which we've talked about as well. So all of the names are significant. And since there's multiple, Isaiah himself is a sign. Shirar Jashub is a sign. Mayar al-Hashbaz, he's a sign. All of them are a sign. Ahaz and Judah receive multiple signs including a virgin will conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. There were clear signs for them at that time. And then there was the sign of Emmanuel, which was the ultimate sign to the house of David. I think that's very important to see. All right. These three names also represent major themes in the book. The remnant, that's a theme in the book. The desolation of Judah, that's a theme in the book. And salvation, that's a theme in the book. And Emmanuel, God with us. So these names really signifies all the themes in the book. A remnant, desolation of Judah, salvation, and Emmanuel, God is with us. God is with us even when they were unfaithful. God is with us even when we are unfaithful. 
It embodies all these themes along with the idea that Judah would be protected if only it would trust in the Lord. All right. So all of that, I think, is very, very important. Then if you go to chapter 8, you got verses 19 through 22. And when they, then when the people shall say unto you, seek unto them that have familiar spirits and unto wizards that peep and that mutter, should not a people seek unto their God for the living to the dead? Uh, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. All right, that's where the darkness shows up. They're not speaking according to God's word. They're gonna, they're, there's gonna be darkness. They shall pass through it hardly be bestead and hungry, and it shall come to pass that when they shall be hungry, they shall fret themselves and curse their king and their God and look upward. And they shall look unto the earth and behold, trouble and darkness, dimness of anguish, and they shall be driven to darkness. All talking about the negative consequences that are going to occur. The Philament Bible says it this way. Isaiah contrasts his counsel with that of the, his ungodly contemporaries. Isaiah's message gives light, whereas the message of the spirits led to darkness and death. Wizards use various means of div- divination, including summoning the dead and the attempt to determine the future. God had banned all of those activities. God had already banned all of those activities all the way back in Deuteronomy 18. Yet here they were turning to the very fraudulent. They kept looking to fraudulent forms of salvation. Right? Um, Chapter 8, verse 20. We can read it here. uh, To the law and uh, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to his word, it is because there is no light in them. Uh, God affirmed the law and the testimony through his prophets, such as Isaiah. That's what they should be looking to. Now, we come to Isaiah chapter 9. Let's read Isaiah 9, 1 through 5. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, uh, uh, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, And afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan and Galilee of the nations. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death upon them hath the light shined. That hast thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy uh, and not increased the joy. They joy before thee uh, according to the joy and harvest and has and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil for thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder the rod of his oppressor as in the day of midian for every battle of the war of the warrior is with confused noise and garments rolled in blood but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire right there's so much there just we're going to we're going to try to get the basic concepts we work through this Last night, let's let's add to this again. Now, back to the filament study app. Beyond destruction, there is hope. In the Messiah's kingdom, the darkness would give way to great light, which was to dawn in Galilee and reach the whole nation and then the whole world. The Messiah's rule would be marked by the vindication of the oppressed and the end of all oppression. He would bring justice and righteousness forever and a kingdom of peace. 
So they acknowledge that this these promises starting in chapter 9 is that something's going to change. The vexation is going to end. Oppression is going to end. There's going to be light. There's going to be victory. What? And then we, we, we ask this question, what, where do we see this fulfillment? Do we see this in the first coming? Do we see this including the first coming and the second coming? Do we see a, a, this being fulfilled in a millennial kingdom? Do we turn it all figurative and spiritual, saying that this is fulfilled somehow in the church? Forget Judah, forget Israel. Those are questions we've, we've talked about and we will con- con- consider to talk about, all right? Now, so they give that's kind of their basic overview of chapter nine, verses one through seven. Then they look at verse one. Zebulun and Naphtali were northern tribes in Israel. They were afflicted by the Assyrian invaders under Tilgath-Pileser III in 734 and 732 BC. So when it says affliction here, chapter 9, verse 1, nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. It's going to be a time of vexation. There's going to be a time of affliction. And he likens it to the affliction given to those nations. And they were afflicted by the Assyrian invaders, again, 734 and 732 BC. However, in Jesus' lifetime, this prophecy was connected with his coming out of Galilee Galilee of the nations was the region of Israel between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Sea. It was heavily influenced culturally, religiously, and politically by the surrounding Gentile nations. Now, this is so, I cannot stress this enough. Whatever else we see going on here, whatever else we're trying to figure out what's going on here, all right? We know this, that that in this area, the Galilee of the nations, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. We know in Matthew 4, cannot stress this enough, Matthew 4, this is something we can know, Matthew 4, starting in verse 14, that it might be, in fact, we'll just go back to uh, verse 12. Now, when Jesus had departed, that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the seacoast in the borders of Zebulon and Naphtalim is the way that the New Testament uh, translates it in the King James. Those are the the very same areas. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtalim by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness saw great light, and to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. So we know clearly that whatever else is going on, well, we can say, well, okay, did this have, does this have anything to do with this situation or this situation? Perfectly fine to investigate any possible historical Fulfillment. Just don't forget that ultimately this is fulfilled in Christ, at least in part in his first coming. No question about it. 
and his first coming. Any, any other time, like, well, there was some times where there was some light here and there were some times when they saw a light here and, and some good things happened. What, whatever times you want to point to, just remember, they don't last. And how do we know this? Well, Israel is just going to go into captivity to the Assyrians, never to come back as a nation. So they're gone. All right, so no more light for them, right? They're, they're, they're done. Judah is going to be constantly in pr- trouble. They're going to face problems with the Assyrians. They're going to suffer. Whatever light they may see, we know ultimately when you open up the Bible to the New Testament, where do you find Israel? Where do you find them all? Under the, under the control of Rome. So they're right back being vex, vexation, right back in darkness, right back in suffering. And then 70 AD, Rome wipes out Jerusalem, destroys the temple, and, and, and just complete and total destruction of Israel. So we have to at least acknowledge that where, whatever we want to see, clearly Jesus becomes that light. And then we have to go, well, wait a minute. The, not all the oppressors are destroyed. The oppressors destroy them. So where, where is the fulfillment of these promises? Then you're left with a couple of choices. Well, this is all fulfilled in the church. It's all, it's all figurative. It's allegorical. It's not literal. That raises all kinds of problems because we believe Jesus was a literal baby born of a virgin. That was literal. We do believe all of these nations are literal nations. So I, I think it's, I mean, the very literal region, which is described here is the very literal region in which Jesus goes and ministers in. Okay, that's all literal. So then why wouldn't the rest of it be fulfilled in a literal way? And I think the only place then to find a literal fulfillment will have to be a future kingdom. But all right, let's go to, to uh, chapter nine, verse four. Uh, Isaiah chapter nine, verse four. Let me go back and read this. Uh, for thou, for thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the days of Midian. So if you go back and read the story of Midian, as he, in a sense, won victory, the same thing is going to happen. There's going to be, the oppressor is going to be broken. And this is what the uh, filament uh, Bible app says. The people experience the rule of other nations as a yoke and a burden. The rod of his oppressor uh, in, in Isaiah 10, 5, the Assyrians are called the rod of the Lord's anger. Just as God's anger will cease, so will Assyria's oppression of Judah. The Lord had broken Midian through Gideon. Uh, and then you can see that in Judges, right? So the, the rod of the oppressor will ultimately be done. Is that just getting rid of the Assyrians? But again, even if you get rid of the Assyrians, well, then you're going to have the Romans. So is, was it a temporary promise? You could say, well, there, there was a little bit of fulfillment there, but not a complete fulfillment, right? Because they're still under oppression and then they're wiped out. So is, 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 was it just a very temporary promise? Well, but it applies to Jesus. So if it applies to Jesus, you think Jesus would be the one coming to break the oppressor. Well, he didn't do that in his first coming. But if we believe in a literal millennial reign, he's going to come and destroy all of the oppressors and he's going to rule and reign and no one will oppress them again. And when they do rise up to try to oppress, they will all be destroyed and it will have a new heaven and a new earth. So do, do you look for that millennial kingdom? I, again, these are very important questions. Burning the garments rolled in blood marked the end of the need for instruments of war. 
That's in chapter nine, verse five. So that would be, okay, no more war. It's all over. It's all done. We don't need any more instruments of war. It's all finished. It's all going to end. But did did Judah no longer need instruments of war right after the Assyrians are taken care of? I mean, they, they, it's like, that doesn't seem like it'd be a good fulfillment. So where would be a good fulfillment? Well, in the millennial kingdom. Well, Christ will be ruling and the lamb will lay down with a lion and, and everything is, it's a time of peace. And then once there, there's an, a sense of war again at the end of the millennium, well, then Christ takes care of it, right? Then new heaven, new earth, right? I mean, I, again, it just makes me feel like that there's no way to find a historical fulfillment for all of these things in any meaningful way. And so your only option is future fulfillment in a, in a allegorical non-literal way, which seems to destroy the hermeneutic for the whole chapter seven, eight, and nine, or a literal fulfillment that hasn't occurred yet and will occur in the future when a millennial kingdom. That, that's, that's why I, I, I can't just completely throw out the millennial kingdom idea. Now, that brings us to chapter nine, verse six. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be called and, and, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now, all of a sudden in verse six and seven, it is so just mind-blowing to try to figure out what's going on here, right? You, you, we, we've, got, we've got lands, clearly, we, we, you know, we have Zebulun, we have Naphtali, we have Jordan of Galilee, we have uh, Midian being spoken of, we have, we have some very specific things going on. And we're like, okay, we're trying to figure this out. Okay, this light is going to appear, and uh, then all of a sudden, Verse six and seven, almost as if it has nothing to do with the in, in initial context. It's just like, whoa, wait a minute. Here are these amazing verses that we clearly apply to Jesus. What in the world? Why do they show up here? I, I'm just going to throw out the idea. I, I did this last night. I'm going to do this again. It's almost like we have the light, in a sense, introduced the promise of the coming light introduced in, in chapter nine, verses one through five. But then we have this light finally, clearly identified. We have it, we have this light identified in Isaiah seven as Emmanuel, God with us. We have the other sons of Isaiah and Isaiah himself that serve as signs to Ahaz and to Judah at that time. But ultimately this light that's gonna come into this region which we've already know it's clearly identifying Jesus as that light because of Matthew 7, 14 and following. Now that light is clearly identified and it's identified in this powerful way that unto us a child is born, a son is given. And then it begins to describe everything about this child. Now, this is the way this commentary describes it. This child the Messiah would be David's descendant. His name shall be called, now these names can be read as throne names. 
signifying the nature of the child's rule. Now, just make, if you call this throne names, this is, this is really signified that this child is going to rule. This child is going to reign. Well, is he going to rule and reign in just a spiritual kingdom? Or is he going to at one day, at one day rule and reign in an earthly kingdom where he fulfills all of the promises given to Judah, Israel, that it's ultimately going to be fulfilled in a literal way? But if these are throne names, then these names really signify his character. This is his character. Let's, let's see how they describe them. All right, here we go. Um, let me go, let me, if we look at the text itself. For unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. There you go. The government shall be upon his shoulder. That's the idea of ruling and reigning, right? That's the idea of ruling and reigning. Well, did that occur in his first advent? Well, then you have to say, well, this is not a, it's, it's referring to a, a, a spiritual government. And then, and then some will say this refers to the church. And oh, you can go so many different directions here. Um, but his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. Now they jump right down to a counselor. The counselor confirms to God's wisdom, unlike the counselors of Judah. Judah's had all of their counselors. They've had all of their ideas. They've come up with all of their schemes. All of them, all of their ideas and schemes have been complete garbage and a train wreck. Right, Ahaz? Not, not such great, your, your counsel hasn't been very good. All of their counsels have been not so good, but this child that's coming, the government's gonna be upon his shoulder and he's going to be called the wonderful counselor. The wonderful counselor showing wisdom, right? I think that makes sense. Mighty God is an affirmation of the Messiah's divine nature. Now, clearly, none of these things could refer to Isaiah's sons, obviously. That, that none of these would refer to Isaiah's sons. Um, he cares for his children as the everlasting father, the father whose care continues forever. All right. So he's going to have the, the care of the father. It's going to be, in that sense, has that the same character. The prince of peace is a leader who brings peace. Alternatively, the names could be collapsed into two. Wonderful Counselor is the Mighty God and the Everlasting Father is the Prince of Peace. On his nature, Jesus Christ, the Son of David, and then they give a bunch of other scriptures talking about it. So they say you could break it down into two, which would be uh, Wonderful Counselor, who is the Mighty God, and the Everlasting Father, who is the Prince of Peace. Now, the point is, they say all of that describes his character, how he will rule, how he will reign. I think it goes not just with his character, it also goes with his attributes, his nature. I think it goes beyond just his character, but it goes all the way down to his nature and his attributes and clearly shows divinity, clearly shows a divine nature. This child is born is going to be different than any other child that has ever existed or will ever exist. This child is going to be divine and he's going to, the government's going to be upon his shoulders. He's going to rule and reign. And we know that the Jews understood some of these prophecies that, okay, they were looking for the Messiah who was going to come to rule and reign. And well, Jesus explained at that first coming, he wasn't there to set up an earthly kingdom. 
His kingdom was not of this world. But when we get to the end of Revelation, he comes back and that seems to be setting up an earthly kingdom. So when we have some prophecies, you're like, well, wait a minute, that, that seems to be referring to some kind of earthly rule. Well, all right, well, then we have to look for his second advent to, to fulfill that. Or you have to then turn it into an allegory. And, and that, that's where I have problems. Because if you're like, well, wait a minute, he didn't come up to set up an earthly kingdom. I agree, not in his first coming. But then if you say, okay, then the rest of these prophe- prophecies can't be literal, well, then you see the dilemma you get yourself into. Well, that one's literal, but that's that's literal, but that's not literal. Oh, sometimes within a couple of verses, well, a child's actually going to be born, literal. However, that government upon his shoulder, not literal, <laughs> figurative, spiritual. Wait a minute, how did who comes up with that hermeneutic? Like you just get to artificially go, well, that part's literal, that part's not, that part's literal. And that to me, I believe is major problematic. I know a millennialist will disagree with me all day. I know that, but I just have a hard time having a hermeneutic that goes, that's literal, that's not. That's Now, I know when the text screams at you that it's not literal, I understand that, but you've got to have something in the text that's really telling you not, not to look at it that way, all right? And so that gets us to verse six and seven. Now, I want to go on to verse eight, but I'm not. I'm going to do this. Now, I've given you some things to work on. I've given you some things to work on. I want you to, again, make that list of all the things that you do know that are clear in the text and all the things you don't know. We don't know a lot about how some of these verses could be fulfilled historically. It's just very difficult to figure out, well, that that's when it occurred. We do know that clearly Jesus is the fulfillment of this. Going all the, Isaiah 9, 1 through 2, that's fulfilled in Jesus. But we know that. Clearly, six and seven is fulfilled in Jesus. So that means everything else has to be fulfilled in Jesus in some way, shape, or form. Even if there is some possible historical something, it's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. There's too many New Testament references to this. So there's no way to get around that. All right, so that's what we do know. Focus on what you do know and then write down what you don't know because that's so important. All right, so I I definitely wanted you to work on that. I still want you to work on the whole spiritual darkness concept. And we'll, we'll do, we'll may just dedicate an entire time talking about that. But then I just want you to consider Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. Is there anything there that causes you any problems, any difficulties? I want you to look up all the commentaries about all of these titles, these names. How do we understand? Do we understand these as exact names or we do understand these simply describing the nature of, well, his rule, the nature of his character, wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Everything about verse six and seven, just read, think, discuss, I, I, I want to say more, but just I want you to just dig in. And if there's something there that doesn't make any sense or you find some confusion in commentaries, let me know because I, I definitely would like to hear. And I just, um, let me see here. If this, uh, I've got a commentary here. 
to see if they say no they don't do anything okay they just they ignore it they ignore it all so that commentary is of no value um i because i wanted just to see just to show you an example of how they do different things that that commentary just was basically like nope next we're we're gonna move quickly through this so but all of that i read tonight is from the filament bible app again very very cool thing to have you should look into getting one the filament bibles are not that expensive i mean 20 30 dollars and then the app is free. And you just, once you have the Bible, you just open up your phone or your tablet, just point your camera at the little symbol and boom, you get notes, you get videos, you get, you get book overviews, you get all kinds, you get themes, uh, you get all kinds of things here. All right. And yeah, um, I, I won't start going through everything in the Filament Bible app, but it's definitely worth it. All right, I, I want to do more with verses six through seven, but I, I think one of the, I, I guess why I will point this out in verse six and seven. I know we get caught up with the names, right? Because it makes great for a Christmas card, right? You know, wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. I know we get caught up in the, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't because those are amazing. It reveals to us, this light, it reveals to us, what it really reveals is, wait a minute, all of you guys ignored the salvation of God for your own schemes, your own plans, your own ideas, and all it's going to lead to is death and destruction. And what you ultimately rejected is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, their everlasting father, the Prince of Peace. You rejected that just so that you could get more death and more destruction. Now, on one hand, I want to say how foolish are all of you? And then I realize, wait a minute, I reject all of those things. I reject, I mean, come on, do I not reject the wonderful counsel of God? Yes, and I seek my own counsel. Do I not reject uh, the mighty God for my own mighty will? Yeah, I do that all the time. The everlasting father, do I look to the, to the in a sense, the care and advice of a father and the chastisement of a father to discipline me and teach me and reject all of that so that I can go run off and find myself in a pig pen eating the leftovers. Yeah, I, I, I do that all the time. So do you. Um, do I reject the Prince of Peace so that I can be constantly in a state of anxiety and worry? Yeah, pretty much all the time. So, I, I can I can condemn all of them for rejecting this, but I reject it all the time as well and have to say, oh me. But here's what I really want you to consider. Verse six and verse seven really emphasizes, I think what's emphasized the most in verse six and seven is this ruling idea, this almost like ruling authority, kingship idea, like a king who's ruling. And I really want you to just think about it. Can, can you reduce that ruling to simply, oh, he's going to rule over the church. He's going to rule over a spiritual kingdom and completely remove any concept of an earthly kingdom. Does that work when you consider all of the promises that are given to Israel about getting their land back and this and that and having a king, all of the... 
all of their the, all the oppress all their oppressors removed and destroyed and you can take all the weapons of war and get rid of them because there's going to be no more war no more oppressors no one's going to be coming against you all your enemies are going to be destroyed you're going to be back in the land everything's going to be wonderful and it makes it sound like that the you know everybody's going to be worshiping god in the temple all of these things that seem to be described which we know didn't happen historically do we then, didn't, if, if you look at Matthew Henry, it's going to be like, oh, that happens in the church, that happens in the church, that happens in the church, that happens in the church. I just don't know if that works because that takes the promises. Here's, here's, what, here's what's weird. Some of the promises are literal. A, a virgin will conceive, bear a son. That's literal. But all of the rest of the promises, no, those are figurative. How do we do that? So I really want you to consider this ruling and reigning language that's described in nine, six, and seven. I know you're going to want to run to those names and by all means, look at them, but just ask yourself, okay, is he going to rule and reign just in a figurative way? Or is there coming a time that he will rule and reign in a literal way on a throne in Jerusalem to fulfill all the promises made to Israel that have not been fulfilled in a literal way? Now, I know that gets deep, deep into eschatology, but I, it, we have to at least address the issue, the question, because it, all eschatology is divided into basically two camps. There will be a literal reign, or no, we're in the—I mean, literally in, in the kind of the millennial idea. We're in the we're in the millennial kingdom right now. Christ is ruling and reigning right now. You're in the millennial kingdom. Isn't it amazing? No more war. We're at peace. The lamb is laying down with the lion. Everything is great. Satan is bound because in the, in the amillennial view, Satan is bound right now. Satan is bound. Isn't it? Don't you love living in the millennial kingdom? Now there's a part of me, I'm saying that a little bit sarcastically because I'm like, I just don't think I'm in the millennial kingdom right now. And if, if I'm in the millennial kingdom, it's really not that great. Because what makes the millennial kingdom any better than it was before the millennial kingdom? All the horrible things happening before the millennial kingdom started are happening in the millennial kingdom. So I have a hard time that I'm in the millennium now. But if I look for a future one, I'm not saying that there's not difficulties with that view either. But at least I could say there's going to come a time where all of these wonderful promises that are put forth in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, okay, that's where it's going to be fulfilled. That's where it's going to be fulfilled. And we get a little hint of that just right there in the beginning of Isaiah 9. Your, the oppressor is going to be broken. All the, all the things that are related to war can be burned up. And I, I need to read um, one more thing. Okay, we're at 53 minutes. I, I, just, I just thought about this. Verse 3. Thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy they joy before thee according to the joy in harvest, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Let me, let me, the, the, the comment, we talked about this last night. I'm going to read this again in other translations, because that one verse is now causing me a little bit of confusion. When I read it tonight, I was like, wait a minute. I think I explained it. I'm just going to look at it one more time tonight. It, I, it doesn't bother me to look foolish. So I got no problem looking at it again. All right, here we go. How does all the different translations? Yeah, okay. 
the, the King James says, thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. The other translations say, you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. You will enlarge the nation of Israel and its people will rejoice. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. You have enlarged, Berean, you have enlarged the nation and increased the joy. Uh, the King James, thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. The new King James, you have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. So all of a sudden, the King James threw me off. Like, why does it say not when every other translation does? I don't think any of the commentaries address why it says not. Um, okay. Uh, yeah, okay. That doesn't even address the not. I'm looking for any of them. Okay. Um Okay, so this one says, thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. And then the commentary says, okay, better following the marginal reading of the Hebrew, thou hast increased its joy. All right, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, yes, I, this must be, and I, and, and I'm, okay, think, think uh, for the person listening who just uh, wrote a note in the uh, chat said that they couldn't figure this out as well. This is what I'm assuming is going on. This has to be a textual variant that somewhere in the King James manuscripts, there, ha- there, there has to obviously, there's a knot that was placed there where all the other manuscripts seem to say, no, it's not there. So the one commentary says it's, uh, it's better to follow the marginal reading of the Hebrew. So it, it seems like, and, and I, think this is, I think this is probably how it works. For some reason, we have a textual variant, and this happens a lot of times if, if you don't know about textual variants, you have all of these manuscripts and sometimes in the manuscripts, you'll have something there. And then, then textual criticism is like, okay, we've got five different renderings here. Which rendering is the correct one? Why is that there? Sometimes it's, it's just, it, you know, when they were copying the, the manuscripts, it, something just got added by mistake. Just like if, if you were, if I were to give you a bunch of paragraphs and say, copy these down, there's a good chance that somewhere in your copying, you may make a mistake or insert a word by accident. I, I do that a lot of times, even when I'm reading something, I start inserting words and I deviate from the quote dramatically and just skip words and add words. And I do all kinds of things like that. So I'm assuming this has to be some kind of a variant. And I think the reason that they're saying go, don't go with the not is it makes no sense because thou hast multiplied the nation, but didn't increase the joy. And then it says, they joy before thee according to the joy in harvest. And as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. So it's like, so you didn't give them joy, but they're joying and something different. Well, all of this seems to be talking about all of the good things that are happening to them. So to me, the context would say, no, you increased them and you gave them great joy. All right. Well, when did, when did this happen? When did this occur? Like this commentary describes it. The picture here is one of unmingled brightness, the return of a golden age, the population growing to an extent never attained before. And that the idea that there's just a time of great joy and, and there's almost going to be a, there's going to be a permanent joy and there's going to be a, a permanent removal of oppressors. And there's going to be a permanent removal of anything related to war. There's going to be growth. 
There's going to be joy. There's going to be no oppressor and there's going to be no war. And it's all going to be because of this light that they have seen. And this light is now identified as the child that is born in 9-6. And why, why is there going to be no more oppressor? Why is there going to be no more need for war? Because this child who is base, is God himself, God in the flesh, is going to rule and reign and remove all of the oppressors and destroy all of that. And that never happened. So it has to happen in a literal future kingdom, unless you then say, no, it's going on right now. We're in the millennial kingdom now, and it's happening in the church. But I look at churches, and there's war, there's conflict, there's division, there's not joy, there's a lack of peace. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't, it feels like the church, we're still, we're, we're, we're involved in war, right? And spiritual war. So, I, I, yeah, that, I'm, I, I, didn't, I'm, I don't know why I didn't catch that last night, but when I read it tonight, I was like, wait a minute, this is not, how did I miss that? Okay, so I'm glad we addressed that, or I would have felt horrible. All right, so there we have it. We backed all the way back up to chapter eight. It's very important to note, Isaiah's name himself, his name himself is a sign. The sign of his two children are a sign. And it's a remnant will return. God's gonna be faithful. Hey, they're coming. They're gonna, they're haste, hasten to the spoil. They're, they're, gonna, they're gonna hurry up and come in and bring death and destruction I told, I, I warned you, but that's what's coming. But Isaiah's name is Celsa, but, but salvation is found in God. You can look to all of these other means of salvation. You're not going to find it. But Emmanuel, God with us, and God will be with us when he comes as a child born of a virgin. And this child is going to be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, and the prince of peace. And the rule, he will rule and reign. And he will bring about all of these other things. Now, here's where it will get complicated. After we figure, if we stop right there, I think we can make some sense. But what happens, I have to at least do this. What happens when then we immediately go, verse eight, the Lord sent a word unto Jacob and it hath lighted upon Israel. All of a sudden, do we have a massive shift here? What happens starting in verse eight? So it's like a dramatic change, like, okay, wait, wait, we've got, we've got this child who's the mighty God, the everlasting father, and he's going to rule and reign. Okay. Okay. The end, but no, 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 no. It's all okay. Okay. Boom. You know, jump at it. You know, we're going to, we're going to turn the camera from that. And now look over here and we're like, wait a minute. We have a word unto Jacob and it hath lighted upon Israel. And all the people shall know, even Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, that say in their pride and stoutness of heart, the bricks are fallen down, but we will build with hewn stones. Sycamores are cut down, but we will change them into cedars. What in the world just happened? <laughs> what? what? Wait, what just, wait, I'm still trying to process this child, and now I'm like, what is going on? They're cutting down trees. What, what, what's happening? Wait, this is back to Israel, not Judah now? Wait, wait, can someone, okay, can someone please stop the ride because I'm getting dizzy, okay? Can someone please stop the ride because that's, that's about how dizzy. It, it's just like, it's immediately like, whoa. It's like you get whiplash. You're like, what just happened? And that's what we'll have to figure out next. But I thought backing up and moving down was somewhat beneficial. So 
I'll stop right there. Now, as I started off by saying, the Bible study exercises are there for you to participate in so that we can work together, discuss, and grow together, figuring this out. And your participation is so beneficial, hopefully, to you and to everyone else who's participating as well. All right. So please do that. All right. I'll stop there. I always feel like there's more I need to say, but it's now 730. And uh, I guess it's probably time to go. So I, there, we didn't get to 90% of the things I was supposed to get to today. We were supposed to get to Molinism. That's what we were supposed to get to. I was going to do an introduction to Molinism, and then we were going to go to William Lane Craig and Dr. James White and then have our brains melt in our head trying to figure out Molinism, but we, we didn't. So uh, you're, uh, thank, thanks, uh, Diane. Um, hopefully that, that was beneficial, but remember the curriculum is uh, available, so use the curriculum, and if anybody else got any questions, let me know. And of course, anybody can email me, newsif at yahoo.com. All right, I'll stop there. There's Isaiah 9, 1 through 6. Or actually, Isaiah 9, 1 through what, 7? Is that how far we made it? I have to look again because I don't want to be incorrect. Isaiah 9, yep, 1 through 7. So spiritual darkness, work on the ruling part of 6 and 7, and then start figuring out what happens after we get to like, we we go to verse 8 and then everything just changes. And uh, we'll have to figure all of that out. All right. Can't wait to hear everyone's discussion this week. Let me know. Everyone have a great night. God bless.